Comics. Movies. Music. Video games. Technology. Blu-ray. Television. This is the HHW LOD Podcast Network. Welcome to the really big show. We're in our usual motley assortment of malcontents, curmudgeons, and pundits from the HHW LOD Network. Talk pop culture, movies, TV, video games, and ever so much more. It's the really big show. Or as we refer to it, really BS. And now, let's start the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of The Really Big Show. Yes, that's right, the initial stand for Really BS. This is Russ, and I'm joined with Jordan and Jim. Good evening, guys. Hey. Hey, Russ. Hey, hey Russ. Jim. In Jordan's case, BS stands for buffalo sauce, because he's full of wings. Mmm, delicious piccalilli in buffalo sauce from Shemung, New Jersey. If you're ever in the area, check it out, because it's the best. So you're probably like... Really, HHWLOD, a new, another new show? And the answer is yes. So what we thought with this show is that we would have a little more time to dedicate to... Uh, our BS shows are pretty popular when we d- did them on LOD, and uh, we, we ended up talking about a lot of different things. So we thought, let's just split it out, and we'll just talk about all of the non-comic stuff so we're not giving anything short shrift uh, and be able to, to expound off of everything else. So, you know, movies, TV, video games... Uh, random other stuff that, that may come up, geeky, probably maybe, you know, convention talk here and there, that kind of thing. So we thought we'd just give it its own feed that we'll do probably monthly at this point. So this will be kind of a nice companion piece to our comic talk on LOD. And, uh, so we just thought, you know, what the heck, we'd just kick it off this way. It's the same, it's the same great content that everyone loves about our BS shows, just in a more easily digestible and findable form. That's all it is, really. Uh, it's not, uh, we haven't thrown anything out. We haven't got rid of anything. If anything, we're adding to categorizing and, and making things more organized, uh, for the listeners. So if you really enjoy our BS shows, then this really big show is, is all for you. Absolutely. And most of you might be wondering where Johnny M is. Uh, this was kind of his, uh, brainchild to some degree. And he's, uh, he's unfortunately going to take a little bit of a podcast hiatus. Um, he's just, he's got some, some stuff going on. He just got kind of a promotion at work that's causing him to, to have to dedicate a lot of time to that. Okay, so, look, he's been dropped uh, behind enemy, enemy lines in Somalia. Okay, we're not allowed, we're not supposed to talk about it. We're not supposed to make a big deal about it. We're supposed to say he's just busy with work. But we all know where he really is. He's part of Delta Force with Chuck Norris in Somalia. Okay? You happy now? You got it out of us, all right? You just violated the terms of your uh, non-compete, non-disclosure agreement. So we may not be seeing Mr. Dietz around anymore. Luckily, I'm broadcasting from my island hideaway that's out of, uh, in international waters, so. Excellent. So, do we want to start with some movie talk? Yeah, speaking of violating things, how about the Prime Directive? Let me explain what's happening here. You are a criminal. I watched you murder innocent men and women. I was authorized to end you. And the only reason why you are still alive is because I am allowing it. So shut your mouth. Captain, you're gonna punch me again over and over till your arm weakens. Clearly you want to, so tell me. Why did you allow me to live? We all make mistakes. No. 
I surrender to you because, despite your attempt to convince me otherwise, you seem to have a conscience, Mr. Kirk. If you did not, then it would be impossible for me to convince you of the truth. 2317461111. Coordinates not far from Earth. If you want to know why I did what I did, go and take a look. Give me one reason why I should listen to you. I can give you 72. And they're on board your ship, Captain. They have been all along. <laughs> so Star Trek Into Darkness. Uh, I, I know I've seen it. Jim, you've seen it. Jordan, you've seen it. So what would it, uh, what'd you guys think? There's a certain line when I'm watching a movie that if it crosses it, it kind of ruins the enjoyment of the movie for me, okay? If there's a certain amount of plot holes. Like, for instance, you know, Avengers had plot problems with it, and that's fine, but it didn't ruin my enjoyment of the movie. Same with Dark Knight Rises. There were certain inconsistencies in the script or the plot, and but it didn't meet the level that it ruined the movie for me. Prometheus is a good example of a movie that was totally ruined because all I'm sitting there doing is saying, what? Really? That's what happens? Uh, because, you know, it, it went so far astray. Star Trek Into Darkness, like, just creeps up to that line where there's just some inconsistencies that, that bother me and just little things that really kind of made, you know, kept it from being a, you know, a home run out of the park. But it's definitely like an infield triple. Since Johnny's not here, I figured I'd use a baseball metaphor. I, I'm close to, to where you're at with that. I mean, if, if any of you have listened to Half Hour Wasted, uh, I was, I was actually up in Dallas and, and, went to the to see it with the boys and uh so I talked a lot on that episode about it and um I, I'm I really want to see it again. I think my I, I think the problem and by the way this show will spoil everything we talk about. So be prepared uh for that. So if there's certain segments you don't want to hear, then you might just kind of cruise on past. Um hopefully we'll do a good job of maybe putting in some some time notes to to let you know when we talk about different things so you can skip past it. Um but I think for me, I when I saw it, I was viewing it too much under the cloud of Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan, and I, I kind of criticized it a little bit here and there about it not being as cerebral as that movie. You know, the the kind of the the cat and mouse stuff wasn't going on in Star Trek Into Darkness like it was Star Trek II, and I I don't think that was a fair comparison because given the timeline of events, this is more akin to Space Seed, and you know, looking back at that episode, it was nothing but fist fight after fist fight after fist fight. Um, so, so I, I kind of, uh, I kind of viewed it a little kinder in retrospect. Um, but yeah, Jim, like you, just some of the logic things just really didn't sit well with me. And I, I talked a little bit on half hour wasted, but like the, you know, the the wonkiness with the transporter. It's like sometimes they can transport things out, sometimes they can't. They could beam a guy halfway across the galaxy, but they can't determine if, you know, somebody's hand is a machine or is a, or the machine is a That's hand. That's something I, I mentioned. Um, uh, we talked about this on Nothing's On as well. We, we did a review of, of this and Iron Man 3 on the same episode. If you want to hear me go a little more in-depth on it as well, like you did on HHW. Uh, but, um, yeah, I mean, if if he can transport to the Klingon homeworld, why didn't he just follow him through the transport transporter that Scotty invented, you know? There are just little things that, that kind of, you know, just kind of, you know, nitpicks, yes, but kind of bothered me enough to take me out of the story. And don't get me wrong, I thought the performances were great. The Batch, awesome. 
you know, Chris Pine and, 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 uh, Zachary Kinto were both really great. Even Zoe Saldana had some good moments. Um, you know, I, I thought that, you know, perform- Peter Weller uh, was great in this. I thought, you know, I thought overall, you know, the performances were great. It looked great and it had, had the action and everything, but there were just some things in the script and some things in the story, especially like the, the over the top fan service uh, near the end, you know, the kind of call back to Wrath of Khan, uh, but inside out with Spock on, on the other side, you know, uh, uh, that, you know, Kirk was in Wrath of Khan and vice versa. It just seemed really kind of forced. And the whole thing about Kirk dying and bring, being brought back to life was, you know, just kind of smacked of E.T. to me. <laughs> it was like, oh, look, E.T.'s come back to life now, you know, woo-woo, you know. That's really the same thing that killed it for me. I, I love 98% of this movie, but either kill him or leave him alone, because otherwise it just came off stupid and cheap, and it really tainted the rest of the movie for me. Other than that, I really did enjoy this whole thing. And and there was a moment where I just thought, just for a fraction of a moment, I thought, wow, Abrams really has the balls to kill off Captain Kirk in the second Star Trek movie? He's really going to do this? You know, I just cannot, could not believe it, and I thought... Wow, that's really cool. That's a really bold thing. That'd be really great. Spock, you know, and I'm thinking, you know, already permutating about what would happen. And then, of course, I see the triple twitch and I realize what's going to happen. And my eyes roll. But yeah, like I said, I enjoyed, I enjoyed the movie overall. I give it like a, probably a 3.75. But there's just some things in the script and the plot that just kind of nagged at me. Yeah, it's, you know, and I think part of it for me is I, I love the first one so much. Like, I, I, I thought the first Star Trek was, uh, you know, kind of bordering on, uh, you know, the perfect Star Trek movie. It, it's, you know, it's definitely ranks up there with, with Wrath of Khan and with First Contact. And then, and then the Abrams Star Trek, I think is, is, is right there. Um, and, and this one was, was really good, but I think there were just some of those things that just really, uh, really stuck out. But, um, but I think, you know, I, I, I really like the first half of it. I like the whole thing with Kirk and him. It it really showing how he's kind of the untried captain that he's been given this ship, maybe somewhat prematurely, um, and that he's a little bit arrogant and kind of has to go through this. You know, kind of has to grow up a little bit. And I I would have hoped that the first movie would have gotten us to the point where it's like okay, from you know now we could start with the second movie and move on. You know, with the story, but. I think with this one, they, they've set that, that expectation. I mean, they've, they've, you know, made a point of saying, you know, hey, you know, the Enterprise has been picked for this five year mission. It's out in deep space. You know, we're, we're going to be gone for a long time and not coming back. And I, I, you know, it's, it, this is at, at the time where I really wish this was a TV series and not having to wait, you know, three, four years between each movie to advance that story. Um, the whole five year mission thing, I think, is just really, you know, lends itself to television well, and it's it's harder, I think, to to do in a movie because there again, there's just so much time, you know, spread out be- between you know how quickly they can they can pump these things out. I want to spotlight uh, one of my favorite things from this movie was uh, the mid warp battle. I thought that was just awesome looking and sounding, and it was it was a really quick scene. It was probably only you know twenty thirty seconds, but it was just one of the neatest things I've ever experienced at theater. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty, pretty cool. I mean, it just had a lot of like visually. I, you know, Abram, one thing Abrams can do is is visually tell a story. Uh, you know, and plot issues aside, you know, that's definitely his strong suit is is to just to be able to tell a compelling and visually pleasing story. And and th- this movie definitely 
um, you know, hit the mark on that. And, you know, I think bringing things in like the Klingons and, and, you know, we talked about it before, but Cumberbatch's performance, I think we're just, just all top notch. Um, but, the, you know, too, the, the, the thing that I, I thought was interesting is the, the Admiral Marcus character in that they're really, again, it really kind of hits home that this universe is changed by the events that happened in the first movie, you know, that, you, you know, um, Nero coming through and attacking that Federation ship, I think really put them, put the Federation on a, a more militant path and a more skeptical path. And I think, you know, they view the Klingons, um, you know, obviously as this adversary. So seeing how there's this faction that develops within fe the Federation that's, uh, you know, concerned about, you know, being more proactive and, and, you know, stomping on them before they stomp on us kind of thing. I thought, I thought that was, I, I enjoyed that they carried that through. Anybody else see anything else? Just trailers <laughs> for other movies, really. Um, yeah. There's been a lot of television I've been watching lately, but not a lot of uh, films. Every Man of Steel trailer yep. I see just makes me want to see this movie more and more. I'm loving the score. I, the score that I've heard, particularly in that trailer number three, which was the uh, was like two minutes and 20 seconds long, it's just absolutely beautiful. And, and I know people were trepidatious about the score in particular because they weren't using the John Williams theme, but I'm not saying this tops that. I'm just saying it is something of its own that is really, really cool. And I feel the same way about every Pacific Rim trailer I see. It just looks better and better with every trailer, and I cannot wait. Yeah, it's definitely... I mean, for me, I, I meant to get out to see Fast and Furious 6 because that's kind of like guilty pleasure for me. Um, I've seen I've seen all of them at this point. Most of them I've seen in the theater, uh, actually. But uh, but I, I I didn't get a chance to get out and see it. And I'm not sure I'm not sure at this point if I'll actually get out there and, and catch it before it disappears or not. But uh, but the reviews have been pretty solid as far as it just being again a, a great popcorn action turn off your brain movie. It made a ton of money. I mean it it pulled in over the the five day weekend. I guess it's looking like 120 122 million. Which is Universal's biggest um, opening ever, biggest biggest weekend ever, and it just vaulted the box office as a whole to to a to a record high. So um, it's funny that a movie, it, the Fast and Furious franchise is almost like the Resident Evil franchise, except the Resident Evil franchise is a little bit on a smaller scale. But every movie, it seems like it just does better and better and better in in worldwide box office, um, which is is just strange to see that anomaly. Action movies translate a lot better than dramas or comedies uh, to foreign markets, so you know it's no, it's no surprise that it's kind of grown a following in the overseas market for sure. Explosions are the universal language. Yeah, well, and, and the other thing, and and I know Aaron Aaron Newworth, who does out now uh, with Aaron and Abe, a podcast on the network, uh, talks about, and I've I've seen this around the net as well but just having an ethnically diverse cast helps as well you know it's not just a bunch of uh you know 20 something year old white guys running around on the screen you know the fact that they're able to build this this diverse cast that spans you know different countries different you know and and even different parts of of, of the united states helps it you know globally you know you know there's there's asian actors there's you know latino actors there's african-american actors there's you know Anglo actors and it just I think that helps you know translate it you know kind of universally so it, it kind of has an appeal to everyone so it's got you know the, the cast it's got you know 
explosions and car chases and, and the rock, you know, which is kind of like a universal appeal, I think at this point. Um, and I, I think that's good. I think it's, it's good to have something, you know, that kind of uh, appeals to a broader audience and isn't just for action junkies or car junkies. The Wolverine's picking up steam. I don't, they haven't released too many more trailers for it, but at this point, I'm, I'm almost kind of on media lockdown for some of this stuff. I'm really not actively seeking out um, trailers or news blurbs or whatever on Man of Steel, Pacific Rim, and uh, The Wolverine, because I, I really want to be able to... And I did the same thing like before Iron Man 3 and, and Star Trek Into Darkness. I kind of went into this uh, you know, soft media blackout thing for me personally, because I just... I don't... You know, for a while, I was really into, you know, reading all the news and figuring out what what's, you know, everything's all about. And I've just gotten to the point now where it's just, I want to just go in and enjoy the movie. Because I think lately for me, and I don't know if you guys have the same thing, but my preconceived notions about things, I think, are hurting my experience. Like, I didn't feel let down by Iron Man 3, but I, I just felt like it wasn't the movie that I wanted to see. And and to some degree, that I think that was the, the issue with Star Trek. Um, it, it, you know, if I, if I, if I pictured how a Star Trek sequel would work with Benedict Cumberbatch as the villain, I don't know that that's the route I would have taken. Um, and that's not the fault of the directors or the producers or the writers. You know, that that's more a personal flaw in me. So I'm trying to distance myself from some of this other stuff so I can actually kind of, you know, still kind of get a clue as to what's going on. Um, but But to be able to, you know, more enjoy it with an open mind. Well, there's a lot of good uh, movie news, actually, that's come out lately from some movies that are a little bit further off. Uh, for instance, uh, the rumors now that John C. O'Reilly is being courted for, uh, like, an Agent Coulson-type role in the Guardians of the Galaxy movie. Yeah, I guess his comic, the comic card part of that character actually led the Nova Corps in the, in the Nova comic, but I guess he's, like you said, Jim, he's going to act as this... Uh, this liaison between the Guardians and Shield, which which uh, that ought to be interesting, depending on how how they play John C. Riley, um, because sometimes he can be very aloof and goofy, uh, and I think there's times where he can play it a little more straight. So, and really, probably somewhere in the middle is best for the tone of this movie, at least the tone we're assuming it's going to have, and the tone of the Marvel universe in general. Plus, yeah, it's got Michael Rooker cast as the villain now, which is pretty interesting. Yeah, a villain who, not a villain in the comics, in fact, he's one of the original Guardians, uh, Yondu something, I forget the, the last name, but... No, it's just uh, Yondu, he's an archer-type yeah. character from the original Guardians from the 70s. Ah, gotcha. That would explain why I couldn't remember the last name. But uh, but yeah, so that's a little... It's it's weird, every time I read new casting or plot deals details from the movie, I kind of... I don't want to say roll across my eyes a little bit, but I just kind of get a confused look on my face because while all the actors they keep casting, awesome. I, I like the writer I like and director. I think that's awesome. I love the property. But a lot of the choices seem strange. And granted, that doesn't mean they're going to be bad. It's just I really... Or well, that, true. That's, that's also a good point. But more and more, the more I hear about this movie, I don't know what to expect. I'm still excited about it, but it's just... It just keeps changing the, the image in my head of what it's going to be. I kind of feel that way about the Days of Future Past movie they're making, too, because I just read this week that I guess Hugh Jackman's going to have a, a pretty big role in that movie, uh, bigger than we thought uh, beforehand, anyway. Yeah, there's a lot of, uh, definitely a lot of talk with 
um, Days of Future Past that maybe it might fall closer to the comic storyline where um, Alan Page's character might might have a, a bigger role as well. So that that ought to be interesting. But uh, I think some of the biggest news to come out of that that we've heard is that there are going to be two Quicksilvers, that they've cast a Quicksilver in Days of Future Past, and Joss Whedon is kind of making the circuit and saying that Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch are going to be characters that are involved in Avengers 2. So I think it's interesting. I'm, I'm waiting for the full-blown lawsuits uh, to start, and... I'm I'm curious as to I know certain studios have certain rights to certain characters and I don't know if these were just maybe it's possible that these were dual rights characters because they kind of flow between both franchises. That's my understanding, or? Russ, is that the when the contracts were written with Fox and and I've read this in multiple from multiple sources, um, they specifically carved out Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver so that both companies can use them. Um, Fox can never mention anything about the Avengers with them, and Marvel, in movies at least, is not allowed to mention the word mutants or that they are related to Magneto anyway. But they are both the characters were specifically carved out into a special deal separate from all the regular X-Men stuff. And I could totally think of it of like a Whedon-esque way around that, like just say, you know, whatever you do, don't use the M-word around them. You know, or something like that, where <laughs> they weave it into the plot yeah. that they're not yeah. allowed to call them mutants. You know what I mean? I could totally see Whedon doing something like that. Oh, yeah. so. Well, also, at least in Ultimates 1, their specific uh, parental heritage was never really mentioned, was it? Uh, I don't think so. I, the, 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 what I remember most is just that they were very... Uh, it was it was implied, if not outright said, that they had an incestuous relationship, right? Which they'll probably steer um, away from in the movies. And no, it was it was yeah, it was definitely uh, stated that they were the kids of Magneto in the Ultimates, because that's that's why nobody trusted them. Is because Magneto is more of a terrorist in the Ultimate Universe. And you're right; they did have that whole creepy thing where they were kind of uh, a little too close as brother and sister. You're right. So Tony Stark can make some good uh, Game of Thrones jokes in their direction. <laughs> if they decide to even allude to that, which I kind of doubt, but yeah, yeah. But I, I just thought that was interesting that we're getting this, you know, dual, dual character thing, and obviously it's separated out by by time too, because unless they put Quicksilver as a part of the current time frame of characters like the, the you know, the Wolverine, Iceman, Rogue, uh, you know, Kitty Pride set, or in the the seventies set. Um, of characters, and I'm 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 thinking just based on the movie that he's probably going to be in the in the set of of the characters from the 70s because we know that not everyone is is making a comeback um, from from the original cast. But uh, I guess today was it today or yesterday that uh, Brian Singer tweeted out a, a, his newest picture, which he's been doing a really good job of tweeting out these these pictures on set to kind of keep the interest level going. He's uh he's really using social media, I think, to to good effect, but. Um, he actually tweeted out a picture of it looked like a jacket or some sort of shirt or something Coveralls, that said uh, maybe I was Trask Indi Yeah, Trask Industries. And the logo um, for Trask uh, looked kind of like the face of a sentinel, kind of. Like a, a like a Minecraft sorta, version yeah. of it, if you will. Yeah, and it, de it definitely had the the color was was appropriate. So, and I I know that's that's kind of the rumor that Peter Dinklage is playing um Boulevard Trask in in the movie and he's been sporting the the 70s stash so uh so i'm i'm really curious about this i really hope that bringing singer back 
you know, I loved X-Men First Class. I thought it was a great, you know, a great shot in the arm to that franchise. Um, and, you know, now that Singer and Matthew Vaughn are switching places, um, you know, Singer's directing and Vaughn is producing, whereas in the first one, Singer produced and Vaughn directed. Um, I really hope that, uh, you know, that, that, you know, that carries it on. And it'll be interesting to see both casts, you know, kind of melded together uh, in, a, in an interesting way. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to that next year. You know, sticking in the Marvel Universe, I don't think we've had a chance to talk on any HHW LED podcast about the S.H.I.E.L.D. trailer yet. No, no, what we haven't. What did you guys think of, uh, I guess the full trailer's about, what, two and a half minutes long? Yeah, pretty What'd close. What did you guys think of it? I was psyched for about 15 minutes until I realized that it wasn't going to be Luke Cage. <laughs> No, of course. It looks great. It looks fantastic. Of course I'm going to be there, you know? I mean, it just, uh, it, it looks like it's going to be smartly written and well produced. And, uh, if they can, you know, get, get the, uh, buy with the production values that, you know, uh, they can afford on a network television show and make it, you know, look like the same, uh, cohesive universe, they're going to, they're going to knock it out of the park. Yeah, I definitely like what I saw. I, th- I think it's an interesting mix of characters. I, I like that. It looks like that their base of operations, for the most part, is going to be this huge um, plane, jet, you know, C-130 equivalent or whatever, um, you know, that they're going to kind of kind of hop around on. So I think that'll make for some some interesting uh, location shooting because it, it looks like this is going to be kind of a global team, that it's not just going to be centered around New York or L.A. or San Francisco, uh, that they're going to be going to the threats and not waiting for the threats to come to them. So I'm, um, I'm, you know, very intrigued, very intrigued. Um, and the tone of the, of the trailer at least felt very Whedon felt very, uh, Marvel universe, uh, plenty of good jokes, oh, yeah. plenty of good references. It looked like we saw a flying car, not flying, but, uh, probably a flying car named Lola driven by Colson. Yeah. The funniest bit was when the, I guess it's the character called sky, I think. And she's, She's kind of doing this scrambled communication. It's like, you'll never find me. I'll never, like, and in the middle sentence, like, they open the door to the van that she's broadcasting from uh, and bust in on her, which I thought was My funny. favorite joke was probably uh, either also with her a few seconds later where, you know, there's two ways we can do this. Oh, is one of them the easy way? No. That was good. But I also really like the kind of meta joke of what does S.H.I.E.L.D. stand for? You know, this, 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 this. And what does that tell you? It means somebody really wanted our initials to spell out S.H.I.E.L.D. Yes. I thought that was that awesome. That is exactly <laughs> what it is. Although I've got to say, the current Marvel Cinematic Universe version, which I believe is currently used in the comics, acronym is probably the best one they've ever had, or at least the most not ridiculous sounding one. But yeah, the production value, at least for the pilot, looks good from what we can tell from the trailer. I mean, it's not something you've never seen on television before, but it looks to be in the upper quality tiers of television, certainly broadcast television. And I like how they're, you know, they're making a point of saying this is not, um, you know, going to be Marvel character of the week kind of show that, you know, yes, there are going to be some references, but it's, it's mainly going to be about other threats and, and a realistic group of people and not superheroes everywhere, which I think is the right, approach to take um you throw little tidbits in there to keep the fanboys interested and to keep um you know keep that buzz going but but if you if you made the show solely about that then i think you're gonna 
you're just not going to win over the the mainstream. Kind of making this like a procedural with that Whedon charm and twist and and humor to it, I think is is how you appeal to the masses. We work the cases that Shield hasn't classified. The strange, the unknown. It's not just spy versus spy anymore. The whole world's in on the action. Don't touch Lola. Marvel's Agents of Shield. So since we kicked off TV with Shield, what uh what uh, what are you guys been watching? Game of Thrones, Game of Thrones, Game of Thrones, Game of Thrones, Game of Game of, Game of Thrones. <laughs> it's a show called Game of Thrones, Game of Thrones, Game of Thrones. Although we just had a week with uh, no episode because of the holiday. I, I, I'm going. All right, Jim, are you going through withdrawals? I'm going through a little withdrawals. bit, a little bit. I know my wife was like, you know, what are we gonna watch Game of Thrones? I'm like, it didn't come out this week, honey. What? <laughs> and I had to dodge the rolling pin as it flew at me, but. Yeah, a little bit. And plus, I mean, it's right near the end of the season, too. There's only two episodes left, so. I know. Look, luckily, I had uh, Mad Men to tide me over on on Sunday night. Yeah, I haven't I haven't watched that episode yet. I have it on, on the DVR. Yeah, I'll probably watch it tonight. Did yeah, you I'm... see last week's episode with the uh, introduction of Speed? Yes. <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> that was a strange episode, but I kind of really enjoyed it. It was very strange. It was very strange. If, if nothing else, then for Ken Cosgrove's Ken Cosgrove tap dancing with a broken leg. Yes, yes. Um, back up, just real quick. Back on Game of Thrones. I. It's so bizarre how this season has been odd because it's not been like huge revelation after huge revelation or like huge things happening, but. The acting and and the writing and the characters and the situations are so compelling and so awesome. I feel like every time I watch another episode, I'm like, damn, this one's better than the last one. Damn, this one's better than the last one. It's just, I don't know what it is. It's it's like you could have an episode where when you look back, it's like not that much has really happened. But it was like, damn, I enjoyed the hell out of watching that. Well, yeah, and the really interesting thing, particularly for this season, is... They're not building towards anything. I mean, they're building towards all kinds of things. But with two episodes left in a season, especially a season of this type of show, you'd expect you could say, oh, they're building towards X event, which will happen in the finale. This big battle or something. I'm I'm sure something big will happen. And I know this is all because this is they're only doing like, what, the first half of book three of the season or the first two thirds or whatever. Yeah. But it, it is still weird, certainly, to go. I have no idea if they're building to anything. And I don't know that they necessarily have to either. I just been the performance. I don't know. The end of uh, episode four could have been a season finale in itself. I thought uh, with Daenerys and the slavers. Yes. Yes. Uh, that was so awesome. Yeah. We, I was hoping she would do that. Yeah. It was just. Uh, I mean, that could have been. Uh, that itself could have been a season ender right there. I mean, the whole and and the biggest things that have happened this season have been more personal things, like you know Tyrion being married off to Sansa and. Uh, you know the whole thing with with Littlefinger's uh, confidant being killed by Joffrey, and you know just like a, a lot of it's just like it's not really you know big earth shattering stuff, but it's definitely stuff that has an impact on the characters and the story. So, yeah, for sure, and they're definitely building towards. I I still think they're building towards the big event at the halfway point of the book. I'm curious, and I'm not going to spoil anything if they're building to two big things that kind of happen around that point, like midpoint and slightly beyond, um, or if they plan on ending with one big event 
and then starting the next season with a with a pretty big event and then ending it with another one. So I'm I'm really curious as to how uh how they're going to go down that road. We've seen some shifts with things that don't quite pan out the same way in the series so far as they have in the book with some of these characters. So I'm really curious if they're how far away they're going to turn from the book with uh with the way this season ends, but I have a feeling it's it's going to be pretty faithful to the book when we when we hit that tenth episode, and I really got to give it to uh, Charles Dance as Tywin. Oh yeah, uh, Lannister. He just like outacts everybody he, he is in a scene with. I mean, it doesn't matter if he's in a scene with Lena Headey and 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 Peter Dinklage and uh, and Aiden Gillen. He just acts the hell out of them. <laughs> you know, or I mean, he just is is like that intense of an actor. He's really really great. And and the thing I really appreciate about him is. Even when he's in a scene with a character like Joffrey, he brings the best out of Joffrey too. Not in terms of uh, of attitude, yeah. certainly, yeah. but in terms of the acting and the actual weight to the scene, which is great. He can elevate those other performances. Yeah, I I totally agree. And then that scene with them in the throne room, a couple episodes back, was was pretty amazing. I mean, jo- Joffrey's one of those characters that you love to hate, um, and I think when you really look at at why you hate the, hate him it's because he does such a good job of being such a horrible human being and and that episode i thought was awesome with you know tear with the with tywin asserting himself and we see that you know joffrey i don't think he's afraid of his mother or his uncles or anyone really but he he definitely has fear of his of his grandfather i mean he definitely you know that is the one person that he would not stand up and and openly disagree or openly defy if if he if he challenged him and i th- i thought that was just a really really well done scene yeah there have been a lot of really great standout performances this season uh uh, uh nikolai waldau as as uh, as jamie lannister has been really great this season um uh, and, and, uh, and Gwendolyn Christie, you know, their whole, um, story arc has been excellent. And, and Maisie Williams, I mean, her, her whole story arc this, this time has been really great. And I, I kind of know where her character is going from having read some of the book, uh, series. So it's interesting to see her on that trajectory, you know? Um, yeah. Some really good acting all around. I can't think of a better cast pound for pound, shape for shape in, in all of television, to be honest, other than maybe Breaking Bad. That's the example I was going to bring up, so good yeah. for you. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, otherwise, you know, and maybe even Mad Men as well. I mean, both of them have just exemplary casts, but, you know, there's certainly very few shows on television that can even come close to touching what any of those shows have. Yeah, maybe well, it's Justified, funny. I would put in that category, yeah. too. And the thing with Game of Thrones that's so amazing is is there's such a large cast, you know, that all of for all of them to be at that caliber of of incredible performances with, you know, a cast of, you know, probably close to 15 to 20 characters is, is pretty amazing. I mean, you know, things like even Mad Men, Mad Men's got a fairly diverse cast. Um, but, but Breaking Bad is kind of a little more compact. Um, but, but Game of Thrones is, it's just amazing how, you know, everybody just, just, you, you know, just puts everything they have into the roles that they've been given. You never get the sense anybody's phoning it in. Absolutely not. They don't have phones back then. True. (laughs) I agree with Michael. It's important not to tie your self-esteem into how you look or what people think of you. I mean, look at me. I'm an actor. (laughs) An actor, for crying out loud. I mean, you know how much rejection I face every day? 
But in this business of show, you have to have the heart of an angel and the hide of an elephant. But you've never actually had an audition. <laughs> well, excuse me. Um, okay, Jordan, I know you're busting to talk about it. Try not to explode. We know you've seen, thanks to the help of Blueberry Red Bull, that you posted on Facebook and whatever other chemicals you popped into your body to watch all of Arrested Development on Netflix. Spill. Well, tell, tell well let's it. be clear. I watched all of season four in one go. I didn't shotgun the whole series in one go. I've, of course, seen the whole series or the previous three seasons multiple times. But, uh, yeah, the season four finally released on uh, Sunday at three in the morning, midnight Pacific Standard Time, not midnight Eastern Time, like I thought it was going to be, so I had to wait another three hours. But luckily, like Jim said, I had a lot of uh, the special blue edition of Red Bull, which is awesome. Both the blue and the so red. So you just sat there really wired for three hours waiting for it to come on? Uh, I don't think I had any Red Bull yet until it actually started, maybe about half an hour before it started. But uh, regardless, I'm not here to talk about Red Bull. Um, Rest Development Season 4, it is... It's, it's kind of weird to talk about, and, and this is something I won't spoil, because I know you guys haven't finished it yet, um, but, so I, I won't spoil any plot points, but it's it's a weird beast of a show, and I really liked season four, let, let me say that first, but it's definitely different, and a lot of that comes down to almost everybody in the show, in, in, in the cast of Arrested Development, has other commitments now. It's been years since Arrested Development went off the air. Um, people have their TV shows that they're on now, people have movie careers, and so it was really hard for the writers and the producers to get everybody back into the show, and not because they didn't want to do it. They all speak highly of their experiences on the previous three seasons and of this season as well. It was just scheduling-wise, it was very difficult. There's only one scene in the entire season that has the entire principal cast of uh, nine characters in it. Now, that scene you see multiple times from different perspectives, and every time you see it, a little bit more is in there, so you realize what was going on. But so they had to work really hard with green screen effects, with creative shots, with phone calls to have the characters interact with each other. And, and occasionally they were able to get two or three people in the same place at the same time, and they really milked, milked it for all it was worth. But for the most part with this season, you are seeing one or two characters at a time. You're seeing, like every episode, instead of the normal um, theme song, and it's the same theme song, although they added certain elements depending on the character, but... This episode might be George Michael's Arrested Development, or Tobias's Arrested Development, or, you know, whoever, whatever character it is. So it, everything changes a little bit for them, and you're focusing on that character almost exclusively, and their story of where they've been since 2007, when, when the, the show went off the air. And so you're seeing these chunks out of their lives, you're seeing certain things out of order, you're seeing certain things um, in one character's storyline before you see it in another's. And so it's a kind of a confusing puzzle of a season, but not in a bad way. It's it's weird to, to watch, certainly, because you'll see these scenes that you've already seen three times, but now this fourth time you realize that the first three times you watched it, you completely misread the scene because what was actually going on was informed by things you didn't see until later. And so what you thought they were reacting to was not what they were reacting to the first three times you saw it. And I've watched the whole thing through. I watched it in one chunk, and then I rewatched the first episode of season four yesterday because um, I haven't had a whole lot of time. I, I have a bar prep class that I'm taking right now, so that's taking up the majority of my free time. But 
even just watching the series once, going back and rewatching that first episode of season four, I already liked it almost twice as much as I liked it the first time, and I liked it quite a bit that first time. But it's it's a show, it's, an, it's a season that is going to only get better the more times you watch it, I think. And it doesn't start from a low point. It's just that it's so intricate and complicated. We're actually working on a, a timeline over at Reddit right now. If you go to the Arrested Development subreddit and uh, search for timeline, you'll probably find my thread on it. And it is so complex and so intricate. The work they put into making this fit together and yet still be able to see, to be able to be uh, viewed as only small chunks at a time is amazing. I mean, the, the product they got out of the limited time they had with the actors is amazing. And that's not really to couch it to say, oh, it's not as good as it ha- could, could have been. I think it is as good as it could have been. But it's very different feel from those first three seasons. I think if you like the first three seasons, you're going to like this just as much. But it's definitely going to take some time to sink in how it's different and yet the same and yet kind of a mix match of the two at the same time. It's it's really difficult to discuss um, only have seen having seen it once or only not having seen all of it because there's so many things that are going on. But it's definitely worth a watch if you're in any way an Arrested Development fan. Interesting. I have never... I've never watched Arrested Development. Well, you're in for a treat then, because all four seasons are available on Netflix. <laughs> you know, well, I, sh- I shouldn't say I never watched it. I've I've tried to watch it a couple times, and I don't know. Maybe I just wasn't in the right frame of mind. I don't. I just had a really hard time getting into it. I I just it seemed like maybe a little too silly for me. But it's certainly a very goofy humor in a lot of places, and I know a lot of people also don't like when they first start watching it, like the first six episodes are very mean spirited in a lot of ways. And the show kind of lightens up a little bit as it goes along. Not always. I mean, there's still some really dark stuff that happens in, in the later episodes, as well as this fourth season, there's a character named debris who I won't spoil anything, but one of the most tragic characters I've ever seen on television, particularly in a comedy. But, um, it's, it's a show you kind of have to commit to and not in a madman way, really, where it's you have to commit to it because it's going to be slow, but eventually something will happen that'll blow your mind, or or a Breaking Bad, even in the same way, especially in the first couple seasons. It's just you kind of have to get the rhythm of it. I, I'd almost put it in the category of a um, Curb Your Enthusiasm, where luckily I had bought an entire season before I sat down to watch any of it because I was not into that show at all until I'd seen about six episodes or seven episodes, and right about there it just clicked, and I was like, oh, I get it. And I found it brilliant, but that first couple episodes, which were still just as good uh, of Curb Enthusiasm, I really didn't like at all, and it was just because I hadn't found the rhythms. And granted, maybe Rest of Development isn't for you, and that's there's nothing wrong with that, but it, it is a show that takes a certain amount of adjustment to really get, I, I would say. It, it's its own beast. Yeah, it definitely is. Yeah. I remember the first time I, I tried to watch it, uh, when it first aired on Fox, and I watched, like... Um, Maybe two or three episodes out of order of the first season, just I ran into That's a song. mistake. Yeah, and I just did not get it, didn't know what was going on, kind of thought it was funny, but wasn't really sure who was who and what was what, and I kind of dismissed it for a while. Then um, we ended up getting the DVD sets as gifts uh, for Christmas, uh, I think a year or two ago, and I was like, oh, okay, I'll give it another chance, and sure enough, when I watched it all in order... Um, the way you're supposed to watch it, it made a lot more sense to me. And I was like, oh, okay, now I get this. But yeah, it's definitely, and it, I definitely recommend watching it in order. <laughs> and, uh, but you're absolutely right, Jordan. It's definitely, it's kind of its own thing. It's, I put it in the rarefied era of like maybe a show like Soap, 
I know that's way before your time, but it's definitely a show that was very much unto itself and not like any other thing that happened before it. And that's what, kind of the way Arrested Development is. I mean, the the humor, it, it, it like really builds up after a while, but it's just something that you have to kind of open yourself to in a weird way. Maybe I will uh, give it another try. Like I said, I I, I kind of caught an episode here and an episode there kind of thing, and I don't know, it just didn't seem like my cup of tea. But, um, you know, it, it, the glory and the beauty of Netflix is it's always there well, for the most part and, and available. So if nothing else, I can, I can check it out. And if I don't like it, I don't like it, but, but uh, it doesn't really cost me anything per se. And, and I would say for you, Russ, or anybody else who's never seen the show before, um, or has only seen a couple episodes, you can start watching season four. They do a really good job in the first episode of recapping the important stuff you need to know from the first three seasons. And because of its odd narrative structure, you're kind of going to be only as confused as everyone else is watching it the first time. And it's not confusing, but it's you will be as pleasantly off-put as anybody who's already seen the first three seasons when, when watching it for the first time. Because it is so different in its narrative structure. It, it's Like I said, it's kind of its own... Even though Arrested Development is its own beast, season four is also its own beast. And... uh like I said, I'm not going to spoil anything, but I will say it definitely leaves room for a season five or a movie. There are plot points that are wrapped up from the first three seasons. There are st- there's stuff that's introduced, and some of it's paid off, and some of it is left to pay off in further Arrested Development, which is awesome. And also, if you are a fan of just like the supporting cast of Arrested Development, like they had so many f- great guest stars over the years almost every single one shows up in season four. There is a couple that I can think of that don't show up, but other than that, and they had hundreds of guest stars over the years, probably um, almost every single person shows up in one form or another, or is at least mentioned. I mean, there is just, it is a very dense season and also technically it's longest season. It's only 15 episodes, but because Netflix isn't bound by, you know, the 22 minute structure, it is technically its longest season, even though season one was either 21 or 22 episodes. This is like three or four minutes longer than the first season. Hmm. And the episodes range from, I think, 28 minutes to 37 minutes long. But the average is 32. So it's 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 different. I mean, I really like it. And I know not everybody who's an Arrested Development fan does. There's, I've seen a couple detractors. But it is different, and it's at least... At the very least, a fascinating, fascinating um, television experiment to watch because, particularly in the narrative format, it's unlike anything I've ever seen in television before. And, and I don't keep saying television. This isn't technically television, but it's any unlike anything I've seen in an episodic uh, storytelling visual medium before. Now, there was an interesting news story I read earlier today on Facebook that uh, the Netflix stock dropped like 5% because of the mixed critical reception of uh, Arrested Development. Uh, that may be true. I think they're more interested in uh, in their viewing numbers, and so far Arrested Development seems to be getting very high view counts. So it's it's it jumped right up several spots to like the number one thing being viewed on the site. I think I think Netflix is kind of one of those time time is going to tell. I think it's people have counted it out over over the years, I, and I think 
five or six or eight years from now, I think we're going to look back and Netflix is going to be a huge player. I think it's just going to be one of those things where everybody has it. I think I and I'm not unique to this, but I I really think it has the potential to be the next HBO. I really think that they have the ability to produce the kind of material that HBO is is well known for, you know, stuff like Game of Thrones and The Wire and The Sopranos and well, um, one of the things we covered on Nothing's On, I think, in the news a couple of weeks ago, is that Netflix subscribers now outnumber HBO subscribers. Um, yeah. Which is, you know, very telling. I mean, I know a lot of people, and I know it's just anecdotally around my circle of friends or whatever, but I know a lot of people who have gotten rid of cable or satellite and just gone to Netflix and Hulu and online. Um, I mean, it's, it's, I, I totally agree with what you're saying, Russ. I think, uh, you know, it's definitely, there's nowhere to go but up for Netflix. And I really think it's something that's, you know, as big as it is now, it's going to be something that's even bigger. And, you know, it, it's funny, Russ, you're saying how there seems to be, like everybody keeps saying, oh, this thing is bad for Netflix. It seems like every six months there's a huge controversy with Netflix. They drop some collection of movies or they change some policy or something, and every time it's, oh, this will be the death of Netflix. Oh, this will be the death of Netflix. Yeah. And every time they just come back stronger. I like, think I think something that might might be a problem for them down the road are um, uh, you know people with uh, catalogs of movies like say you know the studios Paramount and you and, and uh, you know the other studio Warner Brothers and whatnot uh, if they were to come out with competing services to Netflix, you know, that, that, you know, and then withheld their, the rights to their stuff from them. I think, you know, that might be a problem for them down the road. But other than that, I think you're absolutely right, Jordan. You know, they've counted Netflix out a num- you know, number of times since its inception, and it's only gotten stronger and more popular. And it's one of those things, I mean, you're absolutely right. Some of the different, um, some of the different production houses are trying to put out their own streaming services. But as we've seen time and time again with the internet, the internet does not like walled gardens. They don't yeah. like having to pay yeah. to go to a specific thing to see that producer's output, usually. I mean, there are some very small exceptions, like, say, a Louis C.K. or something. But generally, they would much rather pay a somewhat higher fee to have a much larger collection of things than to pay a slightly smaller fee for a very specific, just just our stuff, uh, you know, walled garden. And I think HBO is one of the exceptions that might be able to work with that as they keep talking about possibly making HBO go available without a cable subscription. But they're really an exception. Like, even a couple months ago, or maybe just a month ago, all those, was it Universal or Paramount movies got dropped from uh, from Netflix? Does anybody remember which house that was? I know Warner Brothers is looking to do their own streaming thing. So yeah, maybe, they, maybe it I was know them. Warner Brothers has a beta up already for their, uh, yeah. it's called Warner Brothers Archive Program. That but, sounds like, sounds right. So there's like 1,500 titles that um, dropped from Netflix and went over to there exclusively. It's Stream Again, I believe, you know, on the various uh, websites I, I frequent. And it was one of those things yeah. where I actually went through a list of every single movie and there was maybe 10 I would ever watch out of those 1,500. You know, and that's, it's just one of those things where your walled garden can be as specific as you want it, but you've got to have the content that people actually want. Well, and it's funny because Netflix, as a part of their API, used to have the expiration date for all of their different properties. And so there are websites out there that would track it. And they actually pulled that from their API because what was happening is, say, um, a given property was was set to, to expire on March 30th. March 30th comes, 
and then Netflix renegotiates that deal, and then it extends it forward. And it was causing all this stress and commotion over something that may never happen because they would renegotiate. I know part of what Netflix is doing, you know, when they, they had that big alliance with Stars, you know, they get, got all of the Stars catalog and they paid all that money and then Stars wanted a whole boatload of money more and Netflix basically said, stick it, we're not going to pay it. And I, I think it, to, to some degree that's that's kind of smart because, A, you can't, if they put all their eggs in the basket of Stars and then Stars has those deals with studios and they fall apart, then what's ne- Netflix, what do they have holding? They have whatever Stars has. Well, if Stars doesn't have anything, then they don't have anything either. Um, and I think Netflix has now taken the approach because they have this this behemoth of of subscribership behind them of of working with studios and not even for complete studio catalogs, but content within. Like if we're going to work with Paramount or or Nickelodeon or whatever, does it make sense for us to have the entire catalog or is it worth us to pay money for Avatar The Last Airbender and Rugrats or, you know, whatever, whatever's out there? And I think instead of just this carte blanche to the studios for for, you know, the keys to the kingdom, I think it's more. We want these 15 things and we're willing to pay this much money for it. We don't care about all the rest of it. You could do whatever you want. Sell it to Amazon, put it on your own site, whatever. We, you know, we just want this as part of our offering. And I, I think having each studio try and set up and do its own thing, I think the problem is who wants to maintain 12 different subscriptions, even if they're relatively cheap. Um, they're only going to be able to be so cheap. And when you start totaling them up, they're going to total out to more than Netflix. I mean, I, I just don't see me subscribing to Paramount and Warner Brothers and Universal and Disney and paying each of them even four or five, six bucks a month or three dollars a month, um, because it, eventually it just gets to be where it's it's not cost effective or it's just too much to to to, to deal with. Well, and going back to your previous point, uh, what you said about them wanting to pay for specific content over large bundles is pretty much exactly what their official word was, which was about Streamageddon in particular, which was, look, we we had the option to extend our contracts on these, but guess what? They didn't have very high viewing numbers. A lot of people didn't want to watch Tremors 7 or whatever, you know, movie might be on yeah. that list. And there was a lot of those types of movies, a lot of made-for-TV junk, a lot of older children's programming. They're not going to pay to have this stuff if no one's watching it. And in, in many ways, it gives them a lot of freedom to pick and choose, but it's also, at least in my opinion in many ways, great for the consumer because if you're watching something, they're going to keep it and they're going to look for things that are in that uh, that realm or they're going to bring back shows like Arrested Development because, hey, they see this show in particular has tons of views on our service. Why not give the people more of what they want? And, hey, even if they can't bring back a show, you know, you know Firefly or something, they might be able to commission a new show or bring in other shows that are similar to Firefly that they think fans might like. And if people watch them, they'll keep them. And if they don't, they'll move on to something else. Well, the, uh, the, the entire programming of House of Cards was done from their data that showed that people like political dramas, they like Kevin Spacey, and they like... Uh, and like they were Fincher. absolutely right, because that was a fantastic yeah. show. And uh, seriously, I mean, that, if, there was a whole thing on NPR about how they researched, uh, how they went about uh, going you know, to deciding to make House of Cards as their first, you know, uh, Netflix original series. 
I, I really think it's all about content, though. I mean, if it, and I agree, you know, paying like, you know, eight different studios $3 a month or whatever is, is kind of stupid and a lot of people wouldn't do that. I, I totally agree. But I also think a lot of people now are realizing that, you know, the internet, you know, as the internet advances in speed that, you know, cable and satellite are becoming more and more irrelevant. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's, it's definitely very interesting times. I mean, we're going to see a show come back next week that I think it's, it's a co-production deal, isn't it? Jordan, the killing. I think part of their deal to get it back was Netflix, um, option for rights to have it immediately after the season is finished airing. I, I remember reading something about that. I don't remember the specifics, but that sounds right. And House of Cards was something similar where it was a co-production with, I believe, the BBC. The BB, yeah, the BBC did the original and then it was Kevin Spacey's production company. It, it's funny. One of the other podcasts I listened on had, uh, this guy named Dana Bernetti, who is Kevin Spacey's production partner for this company called Trigger Street Studios. And they almost, I think they, they actually got a better deal, like more money to go with another outlet. And he didn't specify who it was, whether it was HBO, Showtime, Cinemax, or, you know, one of the broadcast networks. Um, but they actually picked Netflix because of the freedom it would allow them in other areas. I mean, they, they maintain, like Netflix doesn't have exclusivity on that show. I mean, they, can you know as we've seen they they put out a, a DVD Blu-ray version of the show and that's totally outside of Netflix purview um, and and it allowed them other freedoms you know where they could do things like runtime where it doesn't have to be this strict you know fifty you know forty four minute or forty eight minute or you know whatever you know whatever timeline they could do shows you know and vary the length on them if if they want you know if if that's what the story dictates and so a lot of that freedom is what led them to choose Netflix as opposed to, uh, you know, to, to somewhere else. And that show was dynamite. I, lo- I love that show. I thought it was great. Yeah, and the other thing is they greenlit, based on this, I think the pilot script, they greenlit it for two seasons right then and there. They were just like, you know, give us, fine, you're good, you're good for two years, which is, is pretty amazing. I mean, that never happens, you know, anywhere. Again, that's a really good cast, too. Robin Wright, um, Kevin Spacey. I, I was a huge fan of the West Wing back in the day, and this is kind of like the anti-West Wing. You know, <laughs> just really. Linda Vasquez, Walker's chief of staff. I got her hired. She's a woman, check, and a Latina, check. But more important than that, she's as tough as a $2 stick. Check, check, check. When it comes to the White House, you not only need the keys in your back pocket, you need the gatekeeper. As for me, I'm just a lowly House Majority Whip. I keep things moving in a Congress choked by pettiness and lassitude. My job is to clear the pipes and keep the sludge moving. But I won't have to be a plumber much longer. I've done my time. I've backed the right man. Have you guys been watching Orphan Black at all? Yes. I'm, I'm, I'm several episodes behind. I think I've only watched the first four or five. Um, but it, but it's, it's really good. I, I'm really enjoying uh, it. After, it was funny. After I watched the first few episodes, I wasn't quite sure what to think. Um, and then as the story went on, as, as, you know, the kind of the, the bigger story unfolded in the series, I'm enjoying it more and more, definitely. Um, lead, the lead actress too, Tatiana Maslany, uh, who, who play, you know, plays all these different roles in the, in the uh, series, just really great. I just really think she's, she's an excellent actress. I hope we see more from her in the future too. Yeah, this is a little, uh, I guess it's TV-ish. Um, I bought a 3D television recently. Some of you may listen to LOD in the past have known I've not been a huge, like I'm not a big 3D guy, but 
I thought, well, if I'm going to buy a new TV, it's probably going to be a while before I do this again. You know what the hell? I'll just I'll just get one that has 3D in it. And it's it's been really interesting. I haven't watched a ton of stuff yet. I've got about eh, maybe eight or ten Blu-rays, a uh, 3D Blu-rays, and I've kind of I put in Amazing Spider-Man, and it wasn't it wasn't too bad. Um, I put in Dread, the the recent Carl Urban Dread movie. And the 3D in there, I thought was excellent. I mean, it really, really was good. Um, and then I watched, I watched Tron Legacy, which was a little underwhelming on the 3D side, which is, which I thought would have been just the opposite. But uh, it, uh, a lot of it was not filmed in 3D. I mean, they did just flat out didn't film it that way, and it's it's pretty intentional. I mean, they even tell you in the beginning it's like many sequences of this movie were not filmed in 3d so don't you know basically don't be surprised if you go through large sections and not see it um but keep your glasses on the whole time uh the stuff that was in 3d was pretty decent but uh but so far for me um dread takes the cake i mean dread it really adds something to it seeing it in 3d it's it's pretty impressive i'm surprised you didn't throw those marvel universe uh 3d dvds in there yeah, they're not. I mean, they're, I, I, you did that unboxing video, I remember, on YouTube about the, you know, the Marvel Universe Phase 1 set, and it had, what, the last three movies all in 3D? Avengers, Thor, and, uh, and Cap? Yeah, and it, yeah, and I guess I'm kind of waiting until I could probably, you know, mainline those, you know, all at once, but, uh, I kind of, I, I was, been poking around different sites and having them, you know, rank, like, what's, what's a good 3D home experience, and, um, funny enough, Captain America is is usually at the top of that list on several that I've seen um, of all of them. So it's usually like Captain America, Prometheus, Dread, and funny enough, Drive Angry, the uh, the Nicolas Cage movie that I actually saw in the theater because I got a free ticket for it. Uh, horrible movie, horrible, horrible movie. Oh yeah, that's real bad. Um, but the three D was it, the three D was pretty pretty good. <laughs> um, I watched about a half hour of that in two D on a cable channel, like right after it came, not too long after it came out. Yeah, not a good movie. Yeah, there's pretty much unless you're watching it in three D, there's pretty much no reason to watch that movie. I mean, that's that's kind of the the all the whole thing behind. It. But yeah, so I'm 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 curious. But plus, my nieces and my nephew are going to be visiting soon, um, and so I think we'll probably be. Uh, We'll probably marathon a lot of uh, 3D movies while they're here. So, yeah, I've heard the Pixar stuff um, turns out really well on three on 3D televisions. Yeah, yeah, I've got a couple of those. My son for the with the kiddos, he just bought the 3D packs just because it's not that much more expensive. So uh, he lent me a couple of those that I'll I'll probably be like like I said I'll be checking out probably next week. So we shall see. Did you guys check out the uh, first episode of the new Avengers cartoon? I have it downloaded. I have not watched it yet because they had it for free on iTunes. I mi- I missed it. I was at Comic Palooza in Houston all last weekend and I forgot to set the DVR to tape it, so um, I did not get to see it. I don't want to get off on a rant here, but I just wish they just left well enough alone with Earth, the Earth's Mightiest Heroes cartoon. They were doing great with that. I thought it was excellent. I feel like this is kind of its inferior version. I mean, the only appreciable difference is the Falcon is in this, which is cool. I like the character of the Falcon and everything, but I mean, they could have done that easily. You know, the old template. I mean, I really the Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes is available for streaming on Netflix. Check it out. It's a great Avengers cartoon. I I hope this gets you know anywhere near as good as that. That's all. Huh. Okay, I won't, I'll, I'll, I'll sit back down now. 
that's disappointing. I was really, I had kind of high hopes about that one. I don't know. I mean, it's only one episode, but it just, it seems like uh, a, a paler imitation. It, it, they, the, one of the things that Jeff Loeb has said is that they want to, you know, keep it to single episode stories rather than, you know, spreading out the stories over several episodes. I just, I, I just thought the other cartoon was so much better. I mean, I'm sorry. Fair enough. And they just had the season finale of The Americans. If you have not watched The Americans on the FX channel, uh, it's a very good show. Uh, Carrie Russell from Felicity. I know I didn't watch Felicity, so I didn't even know her from that, but she really sells this. Uh, Noah Emmerich from Walking Dead, who played Jenner, uh, plays an FBI agent in this. It's about sleeper agents in the 1980s who are uh, masquerading as an American family, and they've been there so long their children have grown up as American children, but they are actually KGB agents living in suburbia uh, undercover. Uh, it's uh, really well-written. It's a, it's a really good show, a lot of tense moments, a lot of really uh, uh, cool twists and turns. Uh, the, uh, the the story is told off times with uh, you know, the quote-unquote present day in the 80s, and then our flashbacks to you know uh, their, their training in Russia uh, before coming to America, where they kind of go to American class, you know, to learn to be and speak uh, as an American and, you know, to pass as an American. Super interesting and, and like I said, a lot of good action and a lot of tension, a lot of good writing, uh, good series, and just had the season finale. It's 10 episodes, and I imagine, with, uh, as this with a lot of other FX things, they'll probably uh, pop up on Hulu or Netflix uh, pretty soon. So uh, I definitely recommend it, The Americans. One bit of quasi-television news I'll drop in is that uh, we talked a little bit about the Amazon pilots when they were released and put up for free viewing. Uh, They've made a few announcements of shows that are getting picked up, but I figure the one that's going to matter the most to us is the one that's not getting picked up, definitely, and that is Zombieland. Uh, The pilot was terrible, uh, at least in my opinion, and in many (laughs) other people's opinions, and consequently it is, or not consequently, it has nothing to do with my opinion, um, although I did vote and give them my opinion, but uh, it is not getting picked up to series. It was your vote that did it, Jordan. <laughs> yeah. Was it the creator or the pro- or the producer went on Twitter or Facebook or something and was like, thank you, everyone, for successfully hating down this show. Yeah, well, thanks he for making like... a really terrible pilot. It's not my fault. <laughs> yeah, I just thought that was funny. He was basically blaming his audience for <laughs> for hating it. It's like, dude... It was pretty overwhelmingly, uh, that was, that wasn't just like a vocal minority. I think it was a pretty widespread, uh, uh, response that it was negative. Right. And you know, I mean, I understand why he'd be upset. I mean, the, the co-creators of Zombieland had been trying to turn this into a TV show for years before the movie even happened. And, you know, right. it finally looked like it was on the cusp and then just gets shot out from under him. But Hey, like I said, if it's not good, it's not good. Sorry. Speaking of not that good, uh, I don't know. Did you guys check out the Superman Unbound? Uh, I did. DVD? Oh, did you? Um, Gary Mirano, a uh, good friend of ours from Warner Brothers, uh, it was nice enough to hook us up with some digital review copies of Superman Unbound. Um, I've, uh, now, first of all, did you read the story that it was uh, taken from, the Gary Frank, I, uh, Jeff Johns? I did, yes. Okay, what did you think of it? I I actually enjoyed it. I, uh... I mean, obviously, there's some tweaks to the to the story. Some of it was fairly faithful, um, but I, I I liked it. I, I I definitely liked it better than you know the, the 
Superman versus the Elite and a couple of the other ones they've done. Um, but I, I thought overall it was a, it was a pretty decent job. I I don't know if I, I was really sold on Matt Bomer as Superman. You know what I mean? I yeah. guess I'm just used to the the voice of you know Tim Dilley and then George Newbern, you know, in the Justice League cartoon. So that that kind of bothered me. I I love John Noble as Brainiac though. I thought he was yes. great. Yes, it's really, really awesome there, and uh, just, I mean, uh, um, I mean, I, I don't put it at the top tier like you know, New Frontier or Crisis on uh, Two Earths or any of that, but it definitely, like you said, it's better than Superman versus the Elite or better than you know Superman Doomsday for sure. Yeah, it. Uh, I, I wasn't sold on the voice casting for this one, other than like you said, John Noble, and then. Um, the girl that played Supergirl, she's on. It's funny. There are two people from Castle that did voices on on this one. I think she did a good job as Supergirl. I think Noble did a good job as as Brainiac. Um, I wasn't sold on Stanya Kachik or Bomer as Lois Lane and and Superman slash Clark Kent, but uh, Diedrich Bader as uh, um, what's his name, the the obnoxious Lombard. reporter. Steve yeah, Lombard. yeah, yeah. Steve Lombard. Yeah, <laughs> I thought he was good, but uh, but yeah, I I just wasn't sold on the leads. I agree with you there. That, that kind of threw me a little bit. I mean, granted, I know probably Danny Delaney and Tim Daly weren't available, but I just uh, I didn't think the the voices they chose were were good. I mean, if I can live with Bruce Greenwood as Batman after Kevin Conroy, then I'm willing to change. You know, <laughs> I'm willing yeah. to adapt. So. Yeah, sometimes it just doesn't, I don't know if it's just because it doesn't seem natural. Like, Stanya Kotchik as, as Lois just seemed like she was forcing it. It just didn't seem quite natural. Um, and I, I, Bomer sounded natural enough. I just didn't like, I, I just didn't like the presence that he gave to that character, if that, if that makes sense. No, I, I totally understand. I didn't think he was Superman enough. You know, I didn't think, now they, he, like, Superman's voice should kind of have a bit of authoritative tone to it, you know. And yes. I yes. I didn't think he had that at all. Some they had presence. the the preview for uh the uh Flashpoint, the the next one. And um the trailer actually came out for that and it looks pretty um pretty good. I was pretty um I I'm very hopeful of this one. Uh I wasn't I mean, we all know uh, from the comic side of things how, you know, what the purpose was and how that went out. And it was, a, it was a decent enough story in the comics. It wasn't great, but it was good. And I think this has the hallmarks of a pretty good animated feature, uh, from what I've seen. Did you guys read Flashpoint, the comic? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I did not. Cause it seemed like I saw a lot of the, a lot of the major story beats from the comic in the trailer. You know, yeah. The whole electrocution and, and, Everything you know, the new, the other, the new Batman. I won't spoil anything, but right. Um, but yeah, it seemed like it, could, it might be pretty faithful to it. That's cool. Um, yeah, Donnie Salvo said he heard rumblings that they're actually going to get around to doing uh, the Judas Contract as a feature length, which is probably one of the best known Teen Titans storylines from the eighties. Yeah, that was supposed to be the second one they did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it kept getting pushed back. But I guess now. Um, that, that's finally going to get made, so, according to Tony Salvo. Hmm, interesting. <laughs> so. When you get hold of the Nintendo Entertainment System, when you master Rob the Video Robot, and meet the challenge of Gyromite, 
When you shoot the light-sensing zapper, when you play the system with the most arcade hits, you're playing with power. The Nintendo Entertainment System. Now, you're playing with power. Well, I have some, well, let's segue from that into something that plugs into your TV, okay? We've seen the, um, the presentations now for both the PS4 and the Xbox One, or as it's been being called, the X-Bone, um, I've seen on NeoGAF. Um, it's funny because the architectures are, are, are pretty similar of, uh, to these, um, of these, you know, um, consoles. It's gonna be, I think it's gonna be a lot easier to port stuff from back and forth. And the Xbox One, um, presentation really had no games i mean they showed call of duty and then they showed like some game from the the alan wake team that had a lot of live action footage in it and not really any kind of game quote unquote in it um you know for a game console launch it seemed like really devoid of games well and they also showed forza and they showed uh sports games as well which are not the things i'm into but those call of duty those and call of duty are some of the biggest sellers on the console and the, the stuff they showed for Call of Duty was all about the dogs. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not too surprised by that actually, because I think E3 is the big is the big announcement. I think we're going to see. I think E3 is going to be the game focus of of both consoles. So I think the purpose was, in my in my, based on what I saw, and it's funny. I've uh, my company's actually letting us work one day from home this starting now. So my the actual it it happened on a Tuesday so I was actually able to just kind of take my lunch break at that time and watch it live as it happened um but I think that they're really trying that that was almost like um a press release for the masses like this is how we're going to sell this to people that may not be video game focused by um you know really pushing home the you know the the multi feature you know the kind of the the multitasking aspect to this console the fact that you could um you know watch you know you know still watch a movie or play a video game and have you know this other this this you know media layer come up that allows you to do things like check your final fantasy football stats or you know do a quick imdb search or browse the web or what have you um and it, and it just seemed like that was the focus is to how to make this thing appeal to a wider audience you know, knowing that, you know, E3 is a pretty captive video game audience, and I think we're just going to see a ton of tech demos and and things like that to really show off the the hardware and the specs. Yeah, but I mean, PS4 at least had a few games at their presentation. I mean, they had you know, Infamous Second Son, they had Drive Club, they had uh, you know, the new uh, develop yeah Killzone. They had the new development from the guys who did Heavy Rain, you know, Beyond Two Souls. Yeah, you know, they at least had a few games to, to throw out there for the, for, I mean, you know, I mean, granted, it's cool that it's gonna, like, for instance, it's gonna have an HDMI pass-through, so you can, you know, run your, you know, cable box or antenna or whatever the hell you get television on right through it, so, as you said, so it could be integrated into the experience. But on the opposite side of that, when you buy a game, you have to, um, install it from the disc and then register it online. So the, you know, there's been a lot of, you know, a lot of questions among like you know running games like GameFly. Well, you know what happens to them? What happens to GameStop with you know selling the the used games? You know what happens if I loan my friend you know my copy of this game? You know, 
um, things like that. There are also been some concerns about the Xbox having to update itself online. I think it's like every 12 hours or something like that. Like it doesn't have to be online all the time, but to be able to use it, it has to, you know, a self update every 12 hours. And it's part of like the anti piracy thing or whatever. But I mean, after what happened with SimCity and a lot of other DRM, you know, like Diablo 3, things like that, you know, the, the, some of the problems we've had with the you know, quote unquote always on, internet connect connectivity with games i'm just wondering how many problems they're going to have with a whole console that has to be online to well play. luckily i think the the actual and granted a lot of the information like you hinted at is not set in stone yet a lot of it is still very um just bullet points we have but the actual authentication that they're going to have to do is in a different ballpark at least to my understanding than say a sim city or a diablo where the problem there was, well, it's twofold. One is partially it's there to load all the assets for the multiplayer type stuff, all the information from your friends and from other people uh, on the servers, etc. But it's also the authentication part, which is just the, hey, is this a real copy of the game? Send it to the server, sends back, okay, you're good to play. And by making a centralized where I'm not, I'm not sure exactly how centralized it will be. I'm sure there will be many facilities across the country, but centralized Microsoft servers f- specifically for the purpose of just, hey, is your license okay? Yes, it is. Okay, you're good to go. Simply by having a centralized one of those that is not specific to any game actually should probably help because in addition to the fact that this is not for the multiplayer or any of that other information stuff, it's only holding, as far as we understand it, the authentication information, um, it's not going to have to deal with all of that other information on the servers, and if they can have centralized ones, it can be for all the games, and they can have as many servers as they need, and they don't have to be like an EA or a, um, you know, like a SimCity or, or like a Diablo, where, hey, we need a whole bunch of servers for this first two weeks, and then we're not going to need them all, so we have to rent them or we have to do whatever. They can just have a bunch of servers because it'll cover all the games, and so I, th- I don't think there's as much of a problem or a potential problem there as a lot of people are making it out to be. There still could be. There still could be plenty of problems, but I think they'll be able to sidestep it fairly easily. Well, one of the one of the big areas that I don't know how big it is, but it but I think it's fairly sizable is, you know, members of the military, you know, people in, you know, now granted, a lot of that stuff is winding down, but there's still people in Iraq, people in Afghanistan, people stationed all around the the world that a lot of them in their downtime that's what they do is they go back to their bunk and they and they fire up the Xbox or they fire up the PlayStation and they you know blow off steam that way and if they can't or don't have access to internet but have this box that they want to use and there's this authentication thing going on that's that could be huge um you know th- that they're alienating that audience and just the bad press that goes along with that. I think, I think for the most part, Jordan, like you're saying, who, who really gets on, has one of these consoles and doesn't have it connected to the internet. I mean, I think it's a fairly small minority that doesn't, um, you know, even people that are on slower connections, if all you're talking about is authentication, you're not talking about actual, you know, download of the game or, you know, some sort of uh, connection always be on. Um, but, you know, you're, you know, you're, you know, everybody pretty much has it so they could patch games so they could download previews or demos or, or, you know, whatever. But I think it's just the fact that 
it's this whole big brother thing. And I think it's more, like I said, more a PR and more just people getting in an uproar over it. Um, but that, that could have an impact on it. And I think too, I don't think this story is told yet. I think there's a lot of rumor. There's a lot of whisper. There's a lot of talk. Um, you have one arm of, of Microsoft saying one thing and another arm contradicting it. Um, and part of this may be, okay, let's put it out there and see what the buzz is. Let's see what the backlash is because they have until November, conceivably November, uh, to, to figure this thing out and to, and to, to roll back on it if, if it, if it's going to be just a complete nightmare. And a lot of it also is, you know, who's complaining? It's the gamers. And that's fine. They have every right to complain. I'm not saying they're wrong in doing it. But Microsoft has been very clear, not just since the announcement announcement of the Xbox One, but since the announcement of the Xbox original, the OG Xbox, that their foothold in the living room is not there for games. Games are a big part of it. They like games. Um, you know, they put a lot of money into games, and they are perfectly happy putting more money into games in the future. But their intent is to get a foothold in the living room, specifically for the features that were slowly introduced in the 360 and now will be there from day one and I'm I'm sure ever-growing on the Xbox One. Games are a big part of their business, but they want the Xbox One to be a media console in general. Their competitor, as far as they're concerned, in this next console cycle is not Sony. And I'm sure Sony is a big part. They care about what Sony does. They need to stay competitive with Sony. But they are much more interested in Google and Apple. They are trying to beat not Apple TV, but the the other Apple TV services that are being rumored these days. And, uh, you know, Google's televisions and that kind of stuff. They are more worried about them because they've been working in this game of trying to get into the living rooms for almost or over 10 years now, I guess. And now they've got these big competitors coming in who are going to do the same things that they always wanted to do. So that's why they're pushing that cable and television and all these other media choices um, as hard as they are. They might lose a little bit of gaming audience. I'm, I'm sure some might drop off, but they're more interested in gaming all those other people, which might not be a very popular decision amongst gamers, but it's a shrewd business decision. Yeah, well, I think gaming in and of itself is is going through a bit of a of a trying time. I mean, we're seeing, you know, this whole concept of the AAA game, where you know you're selling between three and four million copies, and that's seen as a disappointment. And how much money and time and effort it's. The new, I was, I'm I'm sorry to break in, but the new Tomb Raider is a great example of that. It sold three and a half million copies in its first month, and yet was still deemed a failure by Square Enix. Yeah, um, which is insane. I mean, that's almost two hundred million dollars of revenue. When it's it, a lot of it is just it. All it takes is one AAA game to perform, underperform, or perform mediocre to completely tank, and it could totally, uh, you know, gobble up the profits of four or five games that perform at a very, you know, respectable level. And you know, look at how many studios we're seeing closed down. I mean, Jim, you you. You know, I know you listen to Giant Bomb and some of the other gaming po- podcasts, and they spend a lot of time talking about, you know, when when THQ went under and some of these, you know, other studios that that are going under or getting gobbled up or cannibalized or you know whatever. Yeah, I mean, even um, Bioshock Infinite, which I think ended up selling something somewhere in the neighborhood of six or seven million, um, was you know it was seen as a mild success. You know, and there's no other company, even films, you know, they don't, 
put that much money into something unless they, they think they're going to get some sort of return. And like with the new generation of consoles, I mean, the production costs are only going to get higher. It's only going to be, you know, you're going to need more people programming, you know, over more time. And, and, you know, that it's going to get even more and more expensive to make a triple A game. That's why, I mean, a lot of the, the cool games I'm seeing nowadays are, are indie games, you know? I mean, look at something like Fez or, um, you know, uh, um, the stuff that Telltale is doing, they're, they're a pretty small studio. Um, you know, there are, there's a lot of really cool games going on in the indie space right now because, you know, the tools are there that, you know, a small, you know, even one person can, you know, Fez is a great example. Have you ever seen the, um, documentary indie game, which is on, uh, on Netflix streaming right now? It's pretty interesting. It's, it's one guy, uh, Phil Fish. It took him about five years to make this game. Um, Fez, which kind of like subverted a lot of really cool, 2D platforming ideas. It was a really cool game. Um, there's a lot of great games in the indie space now because the tools are available out there for, you know, a small team to get out there and make a really interesting game. But by not by, you know, making photorealistic graphics or giant play spaces like you see in the other you know, AAA games, but by doing something a little more creative and taking something, you know, a little more uh, of a different tack. And I think that's really where we're going to see a lot of really interesting stuff coming, you know, in the next five or ten years. It's from that indie space, especially as, you know, the tools get easier and easier to use and more, you know, prevalent. Yeah, the the only thing I'm thinking is maybe we might get a little bit of uh, synergy in the fact that the Xbox and the PlayStation and the PC are all going to be x86 architecture. For the most part, I think they're... I'm way oversimplifying it, um, but the the ability to port a game, to build a game and to port it across those three platforms is going to be a whole lot easier than it ever was. I mean, that was the biggest problem that, you know, I think the PlayStation had was with that cell architecture like it did. I think a lot of games... Um, I, th- I think the PlayStation got kind of short shrifted because it was like, well, you know, we can't, you know, we don't have the time, effort, energy, and and cash to really delve into this thing because there's no question that the PlayStation, from a power standpoint and from a processing standpoint, was was huge. I mean, was was way outperform anything else. But well, the PlayStation it, it, One and Two like made themselves very attractive to developers because you know, a they. They weren't using a proprietary cartridge like Nintendo was. They were using CD-ROMs, so something that's very cheap, very easy to mass produce, as opposed to having to pay, you know, for every cartridge Nintendo, you know, made for its proprietary system. And I think with the PS3, like you say, Russ, because of the cell architecture, it kind of alienated a lot of third-party developers. And now with the PS4, they're trying to, you know, say, hey, look, we're very developer-friendly. We got Mark Cerny and, and, and Ted Henry and these people that are just, you know, like in the developing side of the game, helping them with the architecture. And you know, I think they they want to get back to that PS1, PS2 time where the you know it was a very attractive platform to develop for, and it had a very big install base. And two, one of the things coming out is that it it's it seems that the Xbox One, and and who knows if this ultimately is true or if it's not, or what the story is, but you won't be allowed to self-publish on the Xbox, which you will on the PlayStation Four. So again, there's a lot of talk when it comes to independent developers and small production houses, you know, the ability for them to publish their own thing and, and toss it out there and just kind of run their own show on the, on the, you know, PlayStation marketplace, whatever that ends up being um, is huge. And that, you know, Microsoft may be, you know, you know, may stumble a little bit, you know, based on that segment alone. So 
I, I think it's going to be interesting, but, but Jordan, I think, I think you're right. I think, I don't think this is a race as much of Xbox versus, or Microsoft versus Sony as it is, you know, what are these consoles really trying to be? Are they really, is gaming a, a facet? And I think for the, for, for Microsoft, that's, that's definitely true. They've been very, very vocal about that. For Sony, I, I think they'd like to, but I think there's, you know, Sony as a, as a corporation, has just too many competing interests. It's going to be harder for them to do that, which is crazy given all the consumer electronics that they produce. Um, but just really, you know, what, the, you know, how this this is all going to shake out. Um, it, I, I think it's going to be extremely interesting to see, you know, who ends up on top. I I think all of this is extremely bad news for Nintendo. I mean, I think the Wii U is pretty much dead on arrival at this point. Yeah. Uh, Going back to Sony for a second, because you brought it up and them and their media capabilities. I think I might have said this to you guys off the air, but I don't think I've said it in a show yet. My prediction, and and I'm not, I I own an Xbox, but I'm not an Xbox guy or an anti-Sony guy, but my just general economics um, prediction for this console cycle is that the thing that's going to hurt Sony the most is actually the PS3, and I say that because of the Blu-ray drive. Nothing against Blu-ray, it's it was a huge boon for them. The thing that sold PlayStation 3s for the most part was not gaming. And I'm not saying their gaming sales weren't strong or anything like that, but initially, the huge driving factor behind the PS3 was here is a quality Blu-ray player that is one of, if not the cheapest on the market. And that got Blu-ray into tons of homes. It got tons of people who had no interest in gaming to buy a PS3. Great. Problem is, now you have the PS4 and you have the Xbox One. Most Xbox gamers, regardless of what they complain about now, are still going to go back and buy an Xbox One, and they're going to do it and get the Blu-ray capability. So Xbox people, for the most part, are already going to go to the Xbox One for their new console, and they're going to get Blu-ray there, if like Blu-ray was the deciding factor, which it won't be in this console cycle. Whereas with the Sony, uh, with, with the PS4, a lot of people who bought a PS3 won't buy a PS4, not because of anything wrong with the PS4, but because even if they do play the occasional game, they bought the PS3 for the Blu-ray player, and it's a solid Blu-ray player, and it's still around, and while it might not be the best or the cheapest on the market anymore, they've got it, so they don't need to buy a new console that they would really use 99% of the time as a Blu-ray player. They've already got one, and I think... In the long run, and it'll be interesting to see, but in the long run, I think that'll be the thing to hurt Sony the most. Not saying it's going to hurt them a lot, but I will be interested to see those numbers comparing PS3 sales to PS4 sales and who had a Blu-ray player before and all that kind of stuff, you know, in in the months following the launch of of these two consoles. Yeah, they had the same strategy with DVDs uh, with uh, the PS2. Right, exactly. It was pretty cheap. DVD player, kind of Trojan horsing in there. I also think it's going to be a harder sell around Christmas time, just because, I mean, when we went from PS2 to PS3 and from Xbox to Xbox 360, we made the leap graphically to HD, and it was noticeable. It, I mean, if you played a PS2 game next to a PS3 game, you would notice the graphical leap from one to the other. It's very evident. Uh, but the graphical leap from the PS3 and the, to the PS4 it's not going to be as much. It's not going to be as huge of a leap as it was into HD. And people are going to see it and wonder, you know, why Why would I bother spending $500 on this when I have, like you say, Jordan, a perfectly good Blu-ray player on my PS3 at home and games that look at least this good. 
uh, you know, still coming out for those systems. So it's going to be interesting to see this holiday season, you know, what, you know, which way the wind blows on this. I really, I, I think you make a valid point though, that like the last generation is probably their, their worst, uh, you know, their best, uh, enemy. Right. You know? it, and uh, it's, and it's merely because they don't have a new, um, physical media to take the place of Blu-ray and likely we never will see one. I mean, it's, I mean, I, I've said this many times before, but, Blu-ray is probably the last form of physical video media that will be a widespread thing because after that, digital is going to happen. I mean, we have we don't have the internet infrastructure yet, but we're getting there. And once we do, there's no re- need to ever buy a disc again. There'll be a great Betamax resurgence. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of digital content, have you guys uh, checked out Far Cry 3 Blood Dragon? Because if you haven't, I really want to sell you on this. I haven't played it just to save money, but uh, it looks amazing, and I'm sure I will pick it up one of these days. Yeah, I'm, I'm in Jordan's camp. I just want to read you the, the, the summary, the plot summary, like it matters really <laughs> quick. Uh, Far Cry 3 Blood Dragon. Set in a neon-colored post-apocalyptic 2007, Far Cry 3 Blood Dragon puts you in the role of Cyber Commando Rex Power, in quotes, Colt as you face off against your former commander, Colonel Sloan, and stop his nefarious plot to use dragon blood to turn the world's population into primitive savages. Sold. Yeah, this is um, it, it, this is really fun. It's like a throwback to the 80s, all the great 80s VHS action movies that you used to rent, you know, from your local video store or what have you. Uh, Michael Bean from Terminator and Aliens is uh, Rex Power Colt. Uh, the, there are so many nods and, and, and visual references in this game. I mean, the, the name of your sniper rifle is called the Cobra Khan. Ah. <laughs> uh. Um, and there's just like a lot of little really funny jokes and cool stuff built into the game. A lot of really funny, like, uh, one-liners as he kills people. Uh, and, and he, you know, he has that kind of snake pliskin delivery as he does it. The gun, the, the, the pistol you're using is pretty much the Robocop gun. It looks exactly like it. Um, all your all your um, enemies look like Daft Punk. Uh, it's it's based on the Far Cry Three engine, so it's like solid next generation gameplay. Um, but the the entire landscape is changed to make it look like the Road Warrior or you know some post apocalyptic uh, landscape. And uh, you, you, some of the like they have cyber sharks and cyber gorillas that you can hunt uh, in the jungle. VHS tapes that you can find. We turn the game on. The first thing you see is this tracking, like an old VHS tape, and there's like a bar at the bottom as it's uh, filling the game in. And it, um, the cutscenes are all done in like 8-bit animation. It looks kind of like it's from a G.I. Joe cartoon. It's it's just really great. It's just a really like, uh, if, you're, if you have a fondness for the 80s in any way, and you love first-person shooters, you really need to get this game because it, it's a hoot. It's really funny, hilarious, doesn't take itself seriously. You know, seriously, it's only $15. Uh, I'm sure the price will probably go down eventually. Uh, it's been out for maybe a month or two. But you don't need Far Cry 3 to, to play it. It plays on its own. It's a standalone game. And I wish more AAA developers, as we're going to see um, with uh, the new Borderlands 2 DLC, um, that really kind of changes things up, I wish they would take like their base core engines and, and really like go crazy like the, the Far Cry 3 did, uh, team did here with Blood Dragon doing an 80s style thing. Uh, the Borderlands 2 DLC I'm referring to, Tiny Tina's um, Dragon Island or something. Assault turning, on uh, the Dragon border- Keep or something like that? Yeah, something like that. They're turning the Borderlands 2 engine into a Dungeons & Dragons game, ostensibly. 
Um, so I, I really, I love it when developers kind of take their, these well-defined, well-developed engines that kind of turn them on their ear stylistically and do something totally different with them. I think it's great. Yeah, I agree. So and something else I want to try to sell you guys on, did, do you, you remember, you guys remember a little game called Red Dead Redemption? Oh, yes, I do. Oh, yeah. We all love that, didn't we? Well, imagine Red Dead Redemption with like a, a slightly cel-shaded uh, um, art style and a lot less story. But a lot more shooting, and you get Call of War as Gunslinger. It's it's just it's fun. It's it's not like the greatest game that's ever been made. Basically, the premise is you're this old like Jonah Hex style bounty hunter. You've come into the saloon and you're telling tales of your past, and it's really cool because in some parts of it, someone will correct you and be like, "I thought you said they were Apaches," and I said, and then the game will rewind itself to like as the guy corrects you know the lie that uh. you told or whatever. Um, you play with Billy, you, you allow yourself with Billy the Kid and Jesse James and like all these different, uh, um, you know, legends of the West or whatever. And it's a lot of the, the shooting mechanic is spot on. It's by Techland, the same people that developed Dead Island. It's pretty fun. If you like Red Dead Redemption, you're going to re- recognize a lot of the mechanics in this. You know, you can dual wield pistols. The quick draw system is very similar to Red Dead Redemption. There's a system where you can slow down time so you can target your foes just like Red Dead Redemption. Uh, but like I said, it doesn't have the cool deep story that Red Dead did, but like the, the, the gunplay and the, and the, the, the fighting is really solid. It's a, it's super fun game. I think it's only 10 or 15 bucks on Xbox Live. I picked up, uh, Gears of War, Gears of War Judgment. And, um, oh, sweet. Yeah, I haven't even had a chance to pop it in yet. Um, I, I picked it up on Sunday after I got back from Comic Palooza. I went, went by Best Buy because they had it on sale. And, um, Mainly for the multiplayer. I mean, I, I played all three Gears of War single player. Um, and John and I played a lot of Gears of War 3 multiplayer. It's just a lot of, there's a cool horde mode, uh, on three. And I know it's changed slightly for Judgment, but, uh, the horde mode is just a lot of fun. So, yeah, if anybody is interested in, uh, in playing on Xbox, uh, my gamer tag is Russ, R-U-S-S-A, Latham, L-A-T-H-A-M. So search for me on Xbox and, uh, I'll, if you want to friend me on Xbox, we can uh, maybe gather a, a posse together at some point and play a little Gears of War Judgment. I was on the fence about buying that, but now that I know you have it and want to play some multiplayer, I'm going to look for it uh, on sale. Sweet, yeah. I just um, Something that's really cool uh, that I always notice about when the new generation gets announced is that the, the old generation games immediately get discounted in a lot of ways because they're trying to move that stock to make you know, shelf room. And I always love to go back, especially... You know, at the end of, near the end of a gen, you know, and pick up on all the game, a lot of games that either, you know, played and, and end up trading or, uh, never got around to finishing or things like that. So recently I picked up, uh, Assassin's Creed Brotherhood, which I got like right to the end too, but never really finished. It was my, definitely my favorite Assassin's Creed game. I got Mass Effect 2, which I forgot how great the opening of that game was. Um, that was just a, it's just a really great, uh, uh, like first 20 minutes to a half hour of a game. Great stuff. So I'm, I'm kind of revisiting some old friends, as it were, from this generation. And, you know, like I said, word to the wise, take a look around out there, because a lot of the 360 and PS3 games that, you know, you may have missed along the way that you always wanted to try are going to be, you know, discounted pretty heavily in the next six months. Good stuff. So are we BS'd out for this? Adventure Brothers is coming back. I forgot to mention it. What's Sorry. that? Ah uh, yes, back this Sunday. Well, do you want to? DVRs. Do you want to do a segment and we can just cut it 
and paste it into the TV section? Nah. Adventure Brothers is awesome. There's your segment. <laughs> Watch it. Yeah. There you go. Sweet. Done. Well, gentlemen, that was a really big show. It was. A lot of BS. Well, thanks, everybody, list for listening to the inaugural ep- episode of The Really BS, a really big show. And uh, you can definitely check us out at hhwlod.com, where you can find all of the shows on the network, including the newly recommissioned Longbacks of Doom, Half Hour Wasted, The Shield podcast, The Walking Dead TV podcast, out now with Aaron and Abe, The Black Box, Sean Pryor's podcast, where he has all kinds of stuff going on, which includes some of his friends, uh, such as we've talked about Donnie Salvo, who does uh, Tales from the Attic, which is really cool, where he randomly picks a, a comic from his collection and, and talks about it in, in at great length. Um, lots of lots of good stuff going on there. Um, so we'll have reviews, we've got news flashes, any videos, con coverage, all that good stuff over at hhwlod.com. Um, if you want to leave us a voicemail and give us your opinions on the really big show, you can do so at 516-468-7912 and leave us some iTunes reviews for all the shows. Uh, we recently had to relaunch the entire network of podcasts due to some, some website revamping. Um, we had to resubmit all new feeds to iTunes, uh, so we could really use some, some iTunes reviews. Give us all the stars. That you- That's right. So like we said, this will probably be our, our monthly show where we can just kind of get all the stuff that's been piling up in the corner, um, pull it out, go through it, sift it, throw away the garbage, um, and, and polish up the gems and, and talk about all kinds of really, really cool stuff. So thanks for joining us, and we will catch you next month on The Really Big Show. Have a good one, everybody. Later, Tater. Later, Tater.